says, but you must continue in the things that you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Father, we just humbly ask now as we continue to worship uh, that you would help our hearts to be attentive, sensitive to the good seed and soil of your word that you want to deposit down into our lives. And we pray you'd give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church that's assembled this morning as we open this part of your word and that your spirit that inspired and authored the word of God would now be our interpreter and our teacher and our instructor. Speak to us, Lord. Bless your word as an act of worship. Help us to hear what you would say to us this morning. And we pray this together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, honestly, how important and valuable, if you were to do inventory this morning, would you say the Word of God is and has been in your personal life? I think with lots of different things in our lives, it seems that the value and effectiveness of things kind of tend to decrease over time. For example, if you got some Christmas gift that you're really jazzed about and excited about, I assure you the novelty will wear off very quickly. We all see that, oh, wow, I got this, so exciting, and whether it's the outfit that you wanted that you find out two weeks from now then it tears or it gets a stain or starts to go out of style usually that takes about three weeks or so right and then all of a sudden the new things in or whether it's some novel gadget or whatever it may be it seems that everything in this life the value and effectiveness decreases over times yet with the scripture there is a continual and a constant value that never diminishes the value of God's word the benefits of God's word its value for us continues very consistently and these verses encourage a continuous exposure and accountability to the word of God and let me just say why that's very important because having fellow believers in our lives Christian relationships and brothers and sisters in the Lord and maybe a, a pastor or someone we can look up to spiritually that has some benefit in our lives to keep us accountable to help us stay in check to give us some counsel and accountability and it helps some but there is no greater help And there is no greater accountability that any person could possibly have in their life than the authority of God's word constantly speaking into their life. You will receive constant counsel. You'll receive continual direction and guidance. And the reality is this. If we have personal accountability to God's word, it's going to help us in so many different ways in our lives. And let's be very frank. We all need lots of help. Uh, We're the poster child for we need help. And that's what we all are. The Bible teaches us that our hearts are not well naturally. The Bible teaches us the truth of the exact opposite, that all of our hearts, unfortunately, are infected with this sinful condition. And yet God, in his wisdom, has given us a powerful prescription 
to help with the constant infectious condition of the sinfulness of our own hearts. And that spiritual prescription, that proper prescription, is the very word of God. And even as the heart of every problem is always the problem of the heart. Remember that. The heart of every problem is always the problem of the heart in the same way. Listen, the solution to every problem more often than not is submission to God's word. And, and if we just would submit our hearts and submit our lives to the authority and the truth of God's word, it's amazing how our hearts come into a right place and other things begin to resolve themselves in our lives. Now, chapter three, we're going to look at these verses we read this morning, but just for sake of understanding is giving warnings against some of the dangers of spiritual life. In fact, if you draw your attention back to the beginning of the chapter, let me just kind of acquaint you with the context of what Paul's talking about. He says, but we know this, that in the last days, I think certainly we are seeing that take place, perilous times will come. This is a certainty. Perilous times. The term literally means difficult to deal with. And when the Holy Spirit here talks about the times that are perilous and difficult to deal with in the last days, here it doesn't talk about wars and rumors of wars. It's not talking about famines and cataclysmic things that are happening, natural disasters and, and these kind of things. Here, the thing that the Holy Spirit, that Paul and his pen to the page is concerned about is what's the, the perilousness of the last days. Paul says, here's the problem, the human heart. It's the condition of humanity that's going to make the last days so perilous. Look what he says, verse 2. For men will be lovers of themselves. Seems God knew people would be taking a lot of selfies. <laughs> men will be lovers of themselves. That their greatest love would be consumption with themselves and devotion to themselves and whatever. That they would have a great love for self, self-love. Lovers of money. Greed, materialism, the highest priority, earning more, getting more, acquiring more. Again, money's not evil. The Bible says it's the love of money that becomes the root of all evil. That men would be boasters. Again, arrogant, proud, blasphemers. These conditions of the heart, blaspheming the ways of God. Disobedient to parents. N n no uh, you know, appreciation for authority. Kids thinking they have the right and, and the freedom to be rebellious against parental authority, which then just translates into a complete disrespect for authority in school systems and teachers and principals and the, uh, the government and every other uh, capacity. That in the last days, people would become ungrateful, unthankful, unholy, unloving, no concern for humanity anymore, cold and callous, unforgiving. You harm me once, that's it. I'm done with you forever. I'm going to be bitter and hold that against you the rest of your life. Slanderers, speaking brutally about other people, without self-control, living a life without discipline, just living out of control, no sense of discipline or control in life anymore, brutal, despisers of good that which is good is considered evil and looked down upon traitors people would have no sense of loyalty in relationships anymore no sense of loyalty to anything they'll quickly just turn away from anything or anyone and not be devoted or committed to people headstrong stubborn haughty lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god boy that's a good description the people love enjoyment, entertainment, pleasure 
more than they do God. I assure you, and I don't mean this critically, I assure you that there's someone this morning that is at home or this day more concerned about the pleasure of New Year's Eve and New Year's Day than they are loving God. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The thing they love more than God, and it's seen by the way that lives are lived, is, is pleasure, fun. And again, nothing wrong with pleasure, fun. Not all pleasure is evil. But, but is entertainment, enjoyment, and having fun and social things more important than God, than loving God? He says this would be a, a characteristic. Having a form, verse 5, of godliness, but denying its power. The idea there, again, having a form of godliness, that they want to maintain the, the outward representation of a religious lifestyle, but they don't really want anything to do with truly experiencing the living power of God working in their life. Oh, they want to keep a religious exterior, kind of a religious traditional life and do their thing and punch their ticket, but, but they really want to be open to the power of God really working in their life. They just want the outward trappings of a, a Christian framework of their life, but not really an encounter with Christ that powerfully changes and transforms them. Verse 8, Paul speaks and warns of those who will resist the truth. And then look at verse 13, before where we pick up this morning, he says, and evil men... And imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Again, in our culture, evil men, imposters, it's just going to get worse and worse, the Bible says. Deceiving people, causing people to be misled and misguided. Well, the question becomes, considering the reality of the days getting darker and humanity becoming more just you know, cruel and out of control and, and men's hearts becoming difficult to deal with because of the condition of humanity, things becoming more deceptive. How does someone stay safe in a culture like that? How do you not get sucked into the vortex of what everybody else in the world is doing? How do we not become conformed to the patterns of this world? How do we not become Christians in name and yet though we have the, the name of life, we, we, we have no real reality of the life of Christ taking place in our lives? How do we keep ourselves from being drawn into those things and having a saved soul and a wasted life as a Christian? How do we do that? Well, Paul's going to tell Timothy here, listen, the way to do that in these remaining verses, he's going to say, is through continuous exposure and personal accountability to Scripture. He gives all these warnings in the chapter, and then he says, look what he does. He says, look, these things are going to happen. It's dangerous. It's going to be difficult. Verse 14, pick up with me, but you must continue, Timothy, he says, in the things which you've learned. And been assured of knowing from whom you've learned them and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul reminds Timothy of his spiritual foundation in the things of God. He says to young Timothy who was a mentor uh, was being mentored by Paul sort of a protege in Paul's life this younger man who was a younger minister and a, a disciple of Paul. He says Timothy remember Remember what things he says you've already learned. Remember the things you've already become assured of. What you've grown up believing. He says there, verse 15, that from childhood you've known the holy scriptures. Now we know from chapter 1 in this same book that Timothy had a godly mother and a godly grandmother who had a genuine faith in Christ and, and a deep abiding relationship in the Lord. And Paul even attributed Timothy's faith in Jesus somehow to the connection of that genuine faith that was in his godly mother and his godly grandmother 
and that that had a direct effect upon him in coming to know Christ. No doubt, I believe these two godly women, this mother and grandmother, were probably the spiritual instructors in the early days of Timothy's childhood. The ones who really were concerned about seeing him meet Jesus, exposing him to the scriptures, helping him learn spiritual truths. And no doubt, I think that came as they instructed him privately, then probably you know, teaching him Bible verses around the home and taking opportunity to explain to him things about the word of God. And I think as well, they probably no doubt made sure they brought young Timothy regularly to synagogue worship times and allowed him to make sure he was there as lessons were taught and the scriptures were explained and Paul speaks of these things he learned and he says to him there knowing from whom you've learned them continue in these things knowing from whom you've learned them now when he says from whom you've learned them he's he's referring to this godly upbringing this young man had apparently his mother his grandmother I believe had a real sense of spiritual conviction in their heart that it was their stewardship from God, a divine mandate upon their life, their duty to teach this young man the word of God, to raise him in the ways of the Lord, to expose him to the scripture, to make sure that he knew God, that he understood how to live for God, that he was able to have a relationship with the Lord, that he would know God's will and ways. And as a result, look what these two godly women in Timothy's life anyway, we don't, we don't know the the reality of his father. We don't know. We, we can only speculate. The Bible does not tell us. Did he have a passive father? Maybe. But that didn't hinder his mother from still doing the job faithfully. Did he have an, a father that was absent or died? We, we don't know. But one of his parents clearly embraced this call from God to prepare him in the ways of the Lord and think of what they unknowingly prepared him for. Did they have any clue when they were raising little young Timothy, four years old, five years old, six years old, that he was going to be the one that was going to take the baton from the apostle Paul and transition into that role and become this effective, useful minister for the gospel? Listen, does any one of us as a parent have any idea if we're raising the next Billy Graham? We have no idea. We have no idea when we're investing in that child what their life may be. What a glorious blessing and benefit for Timothy to have that spiritual foundation to be raised in the ways of the Lord, to know the truths of Scripture from an early age, to know who God was, to know what God's plan was for our lives and what pleased God, to know what displeased God that he had this framework from an early stage of his life in his childhood development. You can tell his development and his parental involvement for, for those who were raising him, their primary focus was on one thing, I think above all else, spiritual cultivation of that young man. They wanted to cultivate his spiritual life foremost. I can imagine him learning the holy scriptures that he knew from childhood. I just picture him learning verses from Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed to your word. And then saying, young Timothy, listen. There are going to be other boys that are going to be doing other things. There are going to be other young men who take different decisions and paths in life. But you can keep your life pure. You keep yourself from those things by living according to the word of God. You honor God's word and God will honor that in your life. I can see him learning Psalm 119 verse 11. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Timothy, why are we teaching you these Bible verses? Why are we encouraging you to read your Bible? Remember, Because Timothy, if you, you have the word of God hidden in your heart, not in your head, hidden in your heart. 
The centrality of who you are as a person. He says if God's word is embedded and hidden in your heart, rooted there, it'll protect you from sinning against the Lord. Because as you go to enter into a wrong behavior or action, the word of God, it just comes forth out of the well of your heart and it says, don't do that. That's wrong. And it has a powerful restraining force in our lives. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light on my path. This young man had from his childhood an ability to see the world properly because he had been taught and exposed to the scriptures. Because he'd been raised in that way. And can I just say, what a great example for all of our lives as families. For those of us who are parents, for those of us who are grandparents, that we would take the example that we see here what was done with young Timothy's life to realize our primary role as a parent is our child's spiritual development. Not helping them to be the most successful, influential. There's nothing wrong with those things. Nothing wrong with education. Nothing wrong with grooming the skills and the abilities. And if they're a good athlete or a great musician, nothing wrong with all those kind of things. But the Bible tells us that what should take precedence over everything else parentally is our child's spiritual development. That we want to prepare them spiritually to be a man of God, a woman of God, to have a strong relationship with the Lord. That should be our first priority. Malachi 2, when it speaks of the importance of the marriage relationship, there it tells us that one of the things God is seeking as a purpose and intention of the marriage relationship, it says that he's seeking godly offspring. So that told me something early on. Okay, when I get married to my wife, one of the byproducts that God's looking for out of my marriage relationship and us having children is God doesn't say, I just, just give me some offspring. Because listen, I don't want to launch more burdens into the world. I want to launch a blessing into the world. God says, I'm seeking for godly offspring. Don't just give me your offspring. I want godly offspring. Okay, Lord, I understand my assignment as a parent. This is so everything that we do, our life, our lifestyle, our you know, the importance of what we do and what we don't do, the importance of how valuable is attending church or, or what rules we'll have in our home or or what can we even do in regards to our lifestyle to make sure that one of us is more available to all these kind of things. Everything was about cultivating and developing. I wanted and still want what Philip had in his life. I said that he had four virgin daughters who prophesied. They were morally pure and they were spiritually effective. That's a great ambition. If you have a child, a grandchild, desire that they would be someone who, like Timothy, they can say, from, from my childhood, I've known the Holy Scriptures. They were taught to me. They were explained to me their value. Ephesians 6 says specifically to us as fathers, gentlemen, bring up your children in the training and admonition of the Lord. And today would be a great day, certainly is it, is this New Year's to take inventory as a parent. What's the primary goal of your parenting? To make him a great athlete? He can be proud because he's really successful, because he's well-educated. Again, nothing wrong with all these things. But listen, I, quite frankly, I don't care what my daughters become. As long as they serve Jesus. As long as they serve Jesus. It doesn't matter to me whether they're working as a, a secretary or whether they're making this much or that much. What matters to me is if you love Jesus and you're living for Jesus, the rest is all secondary. It's all secondary. They'll ultimately be in the will of God. And as parents, I think it's important. Evaluate the focus of your life and, and, and let that be something. Perhaps if you need to make adjustments to your life or your lifestyle, then do that. Because say, look, what matters more than anything else is not us having this or driving that kind of vehicle or having this size home, but no, godly offspring. 
What can we do to seek first the kingdom of God to put our primary attention there? I mean, pa parents are crazy. I mean, they will drive their kids three, four days a week here, going to all these places, killing themselves. Their kids are having tons of fun. But are they really becoming more godly? It's amazing the dedication we'll have to all these other things, sports. I'm not saying those things are wrong, but what I'm telling you is this. In my life, in our family life, that was always a secondary thing. This is who we are first. We are Christians. We serve Jesus. We attend church. We go to prayer meetings. We worship the Lord. We study the scriptures. We put a value on the Bible. If there are time for other things, we will do that too. And I didn't care whether my kids liked me. I just wanted them to love the Lord. That's my goal. We can be friends when they're 25, 30 years old. They don't have to be my friend while they're growing up. I have a goal. And here I think this is such a beautiful thing to see what Timothy became, how from the earliest days he knew the scriptures. And let me just say this, if you're a young person like Timothy, it should really give you an appreciation for what your parents did if they raised you that way. And you may not always appreciate when you're being brought up, but most adults typically always look back in hindsight if they were raised in the ways of the Lord and realize the benefit it's now yielded in their life. And you know, perhaps if you haven't said thank you to your parents, maybe they didn't give you the Nikes, maybe they didn't provide everything else, but if they provided you a spiritual foundation and they directed you in the way of the Lord, I'll tell you something, you had an incredible parent. You had an incredible parent. If they raised you in a way to expose you that you might know the scriptures to give you that foundation, that's something certainly worthy of appreciation. Notice what Paul declares in verse 15 as well at the end of it regarding one of the great values of scripture. He says there, you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So again, the Bible tells us that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The one who says no to God literally is no God. God doesn't exist and I'm saying no to God. The Bible says that's the foolish way to live. But the Bible tells us here that through hearing and learning the truth of Holy Scripture, one it says is made wise, their foolishness is driven out of their life and they're made wise for salvation. That is, they're made wise to their condition and how to have a relationship with God. Through the truth of Scripture, we are given the ability to understand our spiritual condition, our need for salvation and how to obtain it. That's what the Scripture does. As we read it personally and privately, as we hear it taught to us, the Scripture is what reveals to us God is holy, that we are sinful and we come to that realization that our sin has consequences to it. We need to be spared from it. It's through the scripture that one comes to understand that a loving God sent his own son to be the sacrifice for our sins and to die in our place and to rise again so that he's a living savior who wants to be the Lord of our life and provides salvation. It's through the scripture that we understand how to obtain salvation. That it's not a religious lifestyle or through works or if we do enough good good and bad, but that the scripture tells us, no, you're saved by grace through faith. It's, it's a gift of God. It's not of works. And Paul here says, this is one of the things, Timothy, that you benefited from above anything else in the scripture is it made you wise unto salvation, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Through reading and preaching of the Holy Scripture, God revealed Jesus to young Timothy. 
And it's through the reading and preaching of Scripture that God reveals Jesus to people. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures, for you think in them you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me. See, this is the most valuable thing of the Scripture. More than being a book of principles and great truths and, and, and interesting prophecies, above all else, it's a book to point us to a person that we might come into a saving lordship relationship with Jesus Christ that we would believe who he is and respond to him in faith. And this is the primary purpose of above all else why the scriptures are written to testify of Jesus. Well, having referenced Timothy's childhood and upbringing, Paul exhorts Timothy here now to do what? He says, Timothy, you've known the scriptures from your childhood. However, look verse 14 back to it, but you must continue in these things. Timothy, you've had a great foundation. You had a good start. The starting point was fantastic through God's word. You originally came into a relationship with Jesus. Through God's word, you initially were able to develop an understanding of the ways of God. But he's saying, Timothy, a good start spiritually doesn't guarantee a great finish spiritually. And this is an important thing to realize. That's why Paul's saying, Timothy, listen. Don't allow your familiarity with the Word of God to make you think, oh, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just kind of, you know, contemplate the scriptures I've already learned, and, and you kind of put it into autopilot in regards to your relationship of Scripture in your life. He's saying, no, Timothy, you started well spiritually, but there's no guarantee you're going to finish well. And even though you have a knowledge of the Word, he's saying, don't get lazy regarding the place of God's Word in your life. Rather, this was an area he was to keep going and to keep moving forward in personally. He was to keep growing. He was to continue in his exposure to the word of God, making progress because that's what's essential for spiritual health. And the same is true for us. Despite how well we know the scripture, and maybe you were blessed to grow up in a Christian home. Fantastic. Maybe you know a lot of the scripture because you were taught it and and it is like a, a, a vault full of information up in here. The bottom line is this. Listen, we, we never arrive. We never come to a place where I say, I know enough scripture. Maybe you've been studying the Bible you know, very diligently. Well, I know a lot of scripture. Listen, but you still don't know enough scripture. Nor do I. It's a constant growing process. I know sometimes I upset people when they want to give me a book and I say, listen, thank you for the book, but I don't feel like I know this well enough yet. When I feel comfortable with how I know this, then maybe I'll read a Christian book or two. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a Christian book. But there have been times where I've just chose not to read a Christian book because I feel like I, I need to know the Word of God better. And a Christian book's written by a Christian. The Word of God is written by God. has a big difference in my life. And so, so important, Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that we're to be increasing in the knowledge of God. Second Peter 3, Peter says that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we should be continuing even in things we've already learned to. So I caution all of us this morning, let us take heed. Be careful of indifference to Scripture in your life because of familiarity or just spiritual apathy because I'll tell you this, I've seen it in my life, I see it in other people. Indifference to Scripture will always translate into infection with sin personally. Whenever we begin to neglect the Word of God and don't continue, we gradually begin to slide back into the things of our flesh and that list described there in the beginning of chapter 3. We need to be continuously exposed to the Word of God, staying in it, letting it have its effect in our life. 
Don't ever stop growing in your knowledge of the word. Continue in these things. Continue growing, learning. It's an ongoing process until you meet the word of God face to face. That's Jesus himself. But until that time, take serious the responsibility to continue. Well, next we see the reason why, in case we needed one, the word of God is so important and should have such priority and preeminence. He says, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof and correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the basis and the importance of the authority of Scripture is he says, verse 16, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Some of your translations render that, I think perhaps even more accurately from the Greek, literally it is God-breathed. It's speaking of the truth, the fact, the unchanging reality that Scripture is inspired by the Spirit of God Himself. That this is not like any other book, a history book, a novel, a whatever. Any, it is a, a living book that the very breath of God, the life of God is breathed into. It's every word, it's every truth, it's every promise, it's every principle. Underline the word there, verse 16, all. That's never changed. I don't care what super smart spiritual people are trying to say today. Well, this part's inspired, but this part we're not sure of. Oh, you're smarter than the Bible now? I can't talk to you anymore. All scripture. That means including everything, excluding nothing. The genealogies, the history, the poetry, the promises, the prophecies, the commands, all of it. The New Testament and the Old Testament. It's a collection of 66 books written by you know, multitudes of authors living on three different continents over a 1500 year period and yet how does all that integrate and there's no inconsistencies in it because the author is God there's one author behind the book he might have been using human pens to record what he wanted but how do you get all those people to write an integrated message that have lived centuries apart, continents apart, different languages, some were fishermen, you know, some were, were zealots. I mean, it's all different combination, but yet there's a consistent message because every word is authored and originated from God. And because it's inspired and God breathed, that's why it is inerrant. The two go together because God is a perfect God. So when a perfect God gives his word, his record of what he wants us to hear and to know, there's no errors in God, so there's no error in his word. The same God who gave it can preserve his word and can keep it in error. So we can know this is a reliable document that we have. There is no error, no fallacy. This is why we say the word of God is inerrant and also we say the word of God is infallible. And the idea of infallible means that it cannot fail. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away. But the word of God endures forever. It's settled forever in the heavens. It will never fail you. People will fail you. You know, Everything else will always change. You notice that? I mean, how much has changed in the last year? This used to be this way. Now it's this way now. We used to believe this. This was history. Now it's not history. God's word will always be reliable, consistent. It's truth. It's unchanging. It's reliable. 
It will never fail you. What it says to you, you can build your life upon it. The reason for its reliability is because of its divine origin. It is from God himself. He says all scripture is given by the very inspiration, the breath of God. It's one word there, pneumatics, that it comes forth as even as breath comes out of my lungs as I speak and the, the life of my humanity breathes out the words. God has breathed his life into the very words of scripture that we have delivering us through the channel and the agency yes of human authors but they were simply God's instruments why? because they were communicating to human listeners so God wanting his word to be understood communicated in a manner that was understandable Second Peter tells us this way that we have the prophetic word confirm which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day and the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this, that no prophecy of scriptures of private interpretation, the idea of somebody personally in their own private thoughts came up with the idea. He says, that's not the case. However, he says, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what was taking place, the term moved there by the Holy Spirit in the, in the Greek literally refers to being carried along by the wind. The term the writer uses is how a ship was moved in a certain direction by the wind filling its sails and pushing it in the direction that it was to go because the wind was filling its sails and pushing it. And this is the picture God gives to us of how his word came about. God filled the sails of human beings in their humanity and put the words into their minds. He directed them like the wind blowing the ship in the direction he wanted to say what he wanted to say, to communicate what he wanted communicated. If you're looking for a definition of this whole concept, I'll read to you what I have written down here. It says, God, without removing personality or individuality of men, worked through distinct individuals, guiding and influencing the thoughts and communication to convey his very word to mankind. This is what God did to give us this inspired book. Luther said this, I quote, he said, it cannot be otherwise for the scriptures are divine. In them God speaks, for they are his word. To hear or read the scriptures is nothing else than to hear the word of God. To hear the word of God. Now, listen, it is that understanding if we truly believe and embrace that, that should affect our attitude towards this book then. If it is a God-breathed document, if it literally is the Word of God, whereby God speaks to us in our lives, and this is literally the very words of God Himself to humanity, then certainly the value of it, the priority of it, the importance of it, should be above anything else. And we take a lot of time to listen to lots of other things. I mean, we listen to Fox News. We listen to you know what uh, people are saying in regular news. We listen to music. We listen to social media. We, we read this. We read that. We listen to people's opinions. How much more priority should we take to listen to what the very God of creation, who knows everything about us, understands what's best for us, has good intentions for our lives, and knows the beginning from the end of everything of what he might want to say to us. And when we realize and truly believe, not just give lip service, but truly believe what this book is, it affects our attitude. First, uh, First Thessalonians 2, verse 13, listen, says this. Paul says, For this reason we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, 
But as it is in truth, the word of God which effectively works in you who believe. Paul says, we're so thankful because when we came to you bringing the word of God, you didn't welcome it as just the word of men. You welcomed it as the very word of God himself to you. The very communication of God. How do you honestly, honest, be honest with yourself, how do you truly welcome and receive this thing that we call the Bible? We call it the word of God. And the reason I say that, you say, well, of course I believe the Bible is the word of God. I'm here in church, ain't I? Well, well, let me just say something. I'm not talking about just what we say. I'm talking about how do you relate to this book? How do you respond to this book? In the same way as human beings, we may say something like, look, don't tell me you love me. Show me you love me. It's cheap to say I love you. Show me you love me. And I think, honestly, if we were to be genuinely humble with ourselves, it's one thing to acknowledge with my words, this is the word of God. It's another thing to act like by the way that I live and relate to this book, that it's the word of God. Do you see what I mean by that? It's very easy to just have our theological concepts or this is the word of God and, and to, say that, to say that and to admit that, but to act like it, if it truly is the word of God, then really if I believe that, would it not then be the final authority in my life all the time? Over every matter of faith and practice, my feelings would not matter, my thoughts would not matter, not that God doesn't take them into consideration, but God's word trumps it all. So I may feel this way, but if the Word of God says something different, my feelings become subservient to the authority of the Word of God. If God's Word says it, that's the final authority. This is the Word of God. So it becomes the final authority in every matter of faith and practice, how I do marriage, how I live, how I handle things, how I manage my life. It also will have a tremendous priority in our life and lifestyle indeed is what God tells us it is and we believe it for face value. Well, Paul then speaks also of the benefits of the word. Notice he says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and then circle this word he says and it is profitable. It's profitable. The word profitable means something yields advantageous returns or results. It brings benefit. Now, if you're somebody involved in investing or finance or business, making profit is the result of first investing into something and then as you invest into something, if you've done well in your investing, then you gain a return. If you don't invest anything financially, you can't make a profit if you've never invested something. So profit comes as the byproduct of investing. And he says the word of God is profitable. If we invest into the word of God, we invest it into our life, he says it will bring benefit. It will bring profitableness into our life. Something that's beneficial if we put time and energy into the word of God. And let's be very honest. A lot of what we put our time and energy to into people, it ends up in loss and waste. And we go, well, I spent all my time doing that and nothing came out of it. God's word is the most worthwhile investment you can make. There's no greater investment you can make in your life to be a more rich person than to invest in the word of God and to make it the highest value and the most important thing in your life. It will, any time you spend investing in the word of God will bring benefit in your life. I assure you, I challenge you, you will see benefit if you invest into your life the word of God. Read Psalm 119. It describes all the benefits 
All the benefits of the Word of God being invested into our life. And Paul here speaks under the Spirit's inspiration of what it's actually profitable for. Let's look at it, verse 16. It's profitable, it's beneficial, it's helpful, first of all, he says, for doctrine. That is instruction, teaching us the ways of God, spiritual truth. It's through Scripture we truly learn who God is what his attributes are, what his nature is like, what he's not like. It's the vehicle by which we get to know God. Listen, the Bible, not experiences, is the best, most reliable way to know who God is. Nothing wrong with spiritual experience. I want to be open to spiritual experience. But the word of God is the most reliable way to truly know who God is and to get to know God in a proper way. It's the clearest revelation of God's will and his plan, how God works. It's the primary goal, it should be in all of our lives, to get to know God. And this is how we do it best, by being in his word and letting his word be the chief pursuit in our life because it's the scripture that is profitable for doctrine. It teaches us healthy, sound ideas about all spiritual matters, the doctrine to understand the Holy Spirit, how he works, to understand eschatology and end-time events. This is how we get doctrine, from the word of God itself. It's also profitable, beneficial. He says, second verse 16, for reproof, that is God's word, challenges or confronts us when we're doing what's wrong. It reproves us. We call this conviction. And as we're in the word of God, reading it ourselves, or as we take a priority to say, listen, I need to be present and receive and hear the instruction of the word of God when the congregation gathers, God reproves us through his word. When we're doing something wrong or displeasing, God confronts us through his word. I hope you've experienced that. When I read the word of God and God says, your attitude's wrong. Your perspective's wrong here. What you're doing is wrong. I know how you think and you feel, but quite frankly, that's how you feel. This is what's true. And God challenges me. He convicts me. He, he reproves my nature. He reveals our sin to us through the word of God. He points out what is wrong and he even tells us why it's wrong. How? Through his word. And it's important that we experience this. God holds before us the standard of righteousness to expose our errors. Hebrews 4.12 says this, The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So again, the Bible says God's word, because it is breathed out with the life of God, it's alive. It's a living book. And it's powerful. And it goes in surgically like a sharp scalpel, like a two-edged sword. And it even divides from what's soulish and spiritual down in the deepest part of the man. What's, what's of the emotions and the thoughts and what's truly of the spirit? And God's word can help separate that and help us to discern and to judge the difference in our lives. Well, it doesn't just confront us and reprove us of error. It also says, verse 16, that God's word is profitable then for correction. The idea is, in the Greek, is restoration to an upright state. The picture here of the word correction is it refers to something that's fallen over and it's now been put back up again. And this is the idea here because God's word doesn't just point out when we're wrong and how we've fallen. God's word also then instructs us how to correct our path and get back on track. It'd be a real bummer if God just said, you're wrong. Well, thanks. Now what do I do? I don't know, you're just wrong. But God's word says you're wrong and let me tell you how to get right. Let me tell you how to be fixed. 
Let me tell you how you can correct and, and it gives us counsel how to reconcile our problems and deal with our personal failures. It assists us how to reset, how to get back on track. It guides us how to make necessary corrections in our lives to resolve things properly in the way that God prescribes us to. And, and let's just be very humble. We all need correction, gang. I need correction in my life. A lot of it. And not just do I need correction, but I need guidance how to correct it once he shows me. And the word of God is profitable for this. Do you, Lord, I want to I correct. God's word will show you how to correct things. Oh, I'm, I'm struggling with my marriage. I, I don't know. Do I need to correct some things. Can you, you got a good book for me to read? Yeah. I actually got 66 volume book. It's called the Bible. And you already got one. You don't got to go buy new person's marriage manual. Hey, I'm not trying to make mockery, but it, but it just, it astounds me how we overlook this as the people of God. This is the instruction, and yet we think we can live a successful Christian life without reading and taking serious the word of God. We can't live for a God that we don't know and that we don't have his instruction manual constantly being exposed to our lives. This is why we find ourselves so often struggling. Look what he says as well, verse 16. It's also profitable for the instruction in righteousness. The idea there very simply is it instructs us how to live right. How to live righteously. It will help us make godly decisions and follow God's direction. You want to make a few better decisions this year? God's word will instruct you how to make right and righteous decisions. The point is simple. It will show you how to do life right instead of doing life wrong. God's word will teach you and make you a man of God and it will give you direction. It will show you how to live as a follower of Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. God's word will instruct you how to follow Jesus and to be that man. Look what he says, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete. Again, we're not men of this world. We're not women of this world. We're men and women of God. And God wants us to be complete, he says there, verse 17. The idea is to be fulfilled, to become mature, not to stay incomplete, but to become mature, to develop, to progress. He then concludes, verse 17, saying, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The idea here is that the word of God is profitable because like a soldier gets equipped for battle, they get well prepared with proper equipment and training that they need to face the battlefront, this is the idea. If a soldier is properly equipped, if a law enforcement officer is properly equipped, they're going to be safer and more successful in what they do because they have the right equipment and they've been trained for the work that they need to do. And this is the idea spiritually. God's word makes us prepared for our roles and responsibilities in the life that God's given to us. J.B. Phillips renders it this way. God's word makes a man fit for all the branches of his work. And there are a lot of different branches and responsibilities we have. How do we do marriage? Well, God's word will equip you how to do marriage. God's word will equip you how to be a parent. God's word will equip me how to be a worker, how to, to be a student, how to do ministry, how to serve the Lord. God's word equips us. It trains us. It gives us the equipment that we need. It gets us ready so that we're prepared to do things in life. Joshua said it this way, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do what's written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. I don't honestly know, but perhaps the answer why sometimes 
Christians live in a way that they're defeated or, or they're in bondage to sin or they're weak and they're anemic spiritually maybe simply is because they're like an ill-equipped soldier of Christ. And it's just simply a neglect of the Word of God in their life. And if that was transitioned or, or, or changed, and they let the Word of God begin to instruct them how to live righteously and begin to equip them for every good work, things would begin to turn the corner. Things would begin to be different. Hey, this morning, obviously, my heart, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge us as a church. What is your personal commitment level to the Word of God? What is your personal commitment level to investing in its influence in your life? I'm talking about reading it daily, and you should. You should, and you can. I don't care if you read it in the morning, if you read it at lunch, if you read it in the evening. Listen, it's not about a legalistic, you're more spiritual if you have devotions in the morning. I just live better because I have devotions in the morning. I've tried it different ways. But, but there is no... There's no reason why we could ever, without making a shallow excuse, say, oh, I just don't have time to read my Bible. I mean, that is just, that is insanity. We have to make time. We have time for TV, for social media, for everything else, for going to the gym a few times a week. And I'm not talking about, listen, don't get, watch, I'm going to read, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year, and I'm going to read you know, one book a week. Listen, don't make unrealistic goals. Don't try and be hyper-spiritual. I challenge you, if you're struggling with daily Bible reading, I challenge you, 15 minutes a day. I would rather you spend consistently 15 minutes a day in the Word of God, read it, think about what it says, maybe jot down, God, this is what I feel like you're saying to me through this passage. To do that 15 minutes a day, then every three weeks, because you feel guilty, read the entire book of Isaiah and have spiritual indigestion and have no idea what you just read. It's not a religious work. It's we need the constant interaction with the Word of God, having profit and benefit, reproving us, correcting us, instructing us, counseling us. That's what we need. What is your commitment level to that? What is your commitment level to regularly, consistently assembling for times of study? To be under the instruction of the Word of God. To hear God's Word taught in your life. I want to challenge you, challenge us. Make a greater commitment to the Word of God for yourself. For your family. Whatever that looks like in your life. Maybe it's reading a little more than you do. Maybe it's being a little more consistent in reading the Word of God. Maybe it's being a little more consistent to say, you know, yeah, I, don't, I honestly, I'm not, I don't consistently attend church every week and I should start being there every Sunday. And it should be a priority and I should consistently be there. For some of you, maybe it's to say, well, I go every Sunday, but maybe I should start going and studying the Old Testament too and see if, if something of greater spiritual value doesn't come out of taking opportunity to attend another Bible study and to be more serious about the study of the Word of God. I'm not going to tell you what it looks like. The Holy Spirit will tell you what it looks like. What I'm telling you is that this is profitable. There's nothing more profitable than you can invest your life into. Let's stand. Let's pray together.